you know, it's a lot about asking questions about like what they really want for their child and that they really want their child to have a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with their body and a healthy relationship with exercise. That's going to look pretty different from the way our culture teaches us to approach those topics. Hello, and welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is so worth it. I'm Christina Safran, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by Una Hansen. She's an educator with a master's degree in educational psychology, and she's dedicated to supporting families in raising kids to have healthy relationships with food and body. She puts us into action through a framework called Parenting Without Diet Culture, where she offers curated resources, including written pieces, workshops, and private consultations, and has a pretty awesome social media following uh, and account. We're so lucky to have her as one of our family mentors here at Equip, where she works with parents and guardians who have a child in eating disorder treatment. Una has lived experience in this area as well as a parent of a child who developed a life-threatening eating disorder. I'm so excited for you to listen in as Una and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Una. It's so nice to have you here. Happy to be here. Well, let's start from the beginning. Talk to me about your journey into the eating disorder field. Well, I think I want to back up and say I thought I knew a lot about eating disorders when I became a parent, um, and I thought it would be pretty easy to protect my kids from an eating disorder. As you said, I have a background in educational psychology. I used to teach high school students, and I coached athletics at the high school level. So I thought I knew a lot about kind of adolescent issues, challenges, and new people with eating disorders. So I had this very simplified idea that if I just, you know, offer dessert every night and I never disparage my body, you know, if I have a girl, I won't let her play with Barbie dolls. Like I had these very simple (laughs) ideas of how I could protect my kids. And I thought I had created a really healthy food culture in my home. Fast forward, you know, into the teen years and I had a child develop an eating disorder and I didn't recognize it for about a year. I didn't know what was wrong. And so, you know, for any parent or guardian listening who thinks like, how did I not spot this sooner? Um, It's, it can be really hard to spot, especially in the way that eating disorders might present today in our diet and wellness culture. So I was already doing parent education and parent support. And then once I started learning about eating disorders the hard way um, as a caregiver, more and more people started to come to me for help with their child. And so I built a private practice supporting families through this um, journey because, you know, having other people who've been through it, I think really are that bridge between the clinician and then like the real world practical stuff that happens during eating disorder recovery. And then the minute I learned about Equip, you know, I was like, put me in coach because (laughs) um, this is exactly what I love doing, supporting families as one piece of a multidisciplinary team. Because I think that's really what it takes for a lot of people to find a really robust recovery. I so appreciate you sharing that and just hearing that, you know, you you were like, I've done all the things, I've done all the things right, and yet it still happens. I'm curious to dig into that year when it did go undetected and some of the things that you look back on now as maybe being, uh, you know, warning signs and perhaps some of the reasons you missed it, in addition to kind of once you came to that realization, what was what was that journey like to get your child good treatment? Yeah, I think, I think parents are more aware now than even five years ago, um, that 
quote unquote healthy eating can be really unhealthy for a growing adolescent. And so, you know, in my family, you know, hearing that my kid wanted to eat healthier, wanted to try out vegetarianism and veganism, I was like, oh yeah, like teenagers are figuring things out. And I have a kid who cares about animals. Like this makes so much sense. I have vegans and vegetarians in my family. And again, didn't realize how this could really lead to rigid ideas about food um, because kids are more concrete thinkers than adults and that you could get into energy deficit really quickly, right? If you've eliminated some foods, Um, you just, you know, you show up at that that birthday party and there's pepperoni pizza. Okay, I guess I'm going to just not eat. And so, you know, I didn't realize how quickly that could happen. Also, the way exercise, we have kind of like a more is more (laughs) approach in our culture. So, you know, a renewed or new interest in athletics and exercise in general, most families would be like, great way to go. And even my child's pediatrician had said, make sure you're getting enough fruits and vegetables and that you're getting enough activity. And so, you know, it was really the perfect storm of everything on the surface sounding like not only a neutral thing, but like a good thing uh, for one's health. And it really quickly became unhealthy, but it didn't look like what I thought it looked like. I didn't know that the meal being eaten at, at home was the only meal being consumed the whole day because how could my trustworthy, intelligent child that I had a great relationship with not be telling me the truth? I didn't know that the eating disorder could be manipulating all of us, including my child. So it really was a long process to discover what was uh, what was going on, and um, it was not easy to find good treatment. Um, we, I have so much privilege. We have we had really good health insurance at the time. I live in a major metropolitan area with a lot of treatment providers, and it was still hard to find the right treatment. So it's what, again one of the things I love about Equip is that you know. If you have an internet connection, right, you have a good chance of finding someone who can help you. So uh, it shouldn't be this hard, but it really was a journey for us. Yeah. If you can just share a little bit more about kind of that journey and and what you had to sort of juggle and, and the hoops that you had to jump through and maybe how some of that mirrors what you see now when you're working with families in terms of, you know, accessing treatment that actually has a strong evidence base behind it. Yeah, I think, you know, I I can't remember what the exact statistic is about how long it takes for research to get into clinical practice. 20 years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's too long. It's too long. Um, I think, you know, we know that most adolescent medicine doctors, less so, I would say less so adolescent medicine doctors, but most pediatricians really get very little training in eating disorders. And the training they got was probably a little outdated, right? And so they think eating disorders look a certain way. Um, they get much more information about like encouraging healthy eating, encouraging, again, putting that quotation marks, healthy eating, exercise. They are, they're more concerned about weight gain than weight loss. Um, again, just because of the training that they're and the pressures that they're under. So I think most pediatricians just don't always see the urgency. You know, there can even be that like, oh, let's wait and see. Maybe this is a fad. Um, maybe parents should back off and not pressure them to eat. So a lot of really well-intended, but just uninformed advice that parents get. Now, full disclosure, I have a very good friend who's a psychiatrist who treats people with eating disorders, and I have him on speed dial. And um, now why I didn't call him like at the very first slide, I will never know. But 
you know, I, I had the luxury of having a personal friend I could call and he had done his medical training in the city where I live. And within 24 hours, we had an appointment with an eating disorder expert. Now, I mean, that's like a miracle. And most people don't have that incredible privilege. And I will say, even having that, it still took us a long time to find the right treatment for us. Because where I am, family-based treatment isn't sort of top of mind as everyone's first recommendation, just the culture of the city I'm in. Um, So we ended up with a lot of outpatient, very expensive, out-of-pocket, because very few eating disorder professionals can take insurance because you can't, in a major city, you can't live on what insurance reimbursement will pay you. So we did a lot of outpatient treatment, wasn't making progress. So we did PHP, um, wasn't making progress. We got on a wait list for residential, you know, got the last minute wait list bed, rushed to residential. Um, A few days later, my kid needed to be hospitalized because they had completely refused to eat or drink. So medical stabilization, then a fairly long inpatient stay at a medical psychiatric um, ward for eating disorders, and then more outpatient after that. So lots of treatment, very little progress. Uh, My kid was out of immediate medical danger, but was not well. And someone said, you know, I think it's time to check out UC San Diego. (laughs) So we ended up taking our whole family you know, my husband and I took off work, we took both kids out of school, did a one week program at UC San Diego to learn about FBT, and really started challenging the eating disorder in new ways on day one. And I feel that FBT saved my kids life and saved our family. And we had access, we ended up finding a really good FBT therapist where we live so that when we got home, we could continue that treatment. And yeah, I feel very lucky. And I also always wonder, what if the first stop had been FBT. How much suffering would we have saved? How much money would we have saved? Things would have been really different. At the same time, my passion is helping other families. And because I've experienced all these higher levels of care, all these different kinds of treatments, I do feel like I use that a lot when I support caregivers who've also been on maybe that similar journey or had some of those similar stops along the way. Yeah, it's so unfortunate how common this story is, right? I mean, certainly in my own experience, touching on the pediatricians missing it, you know, I talk about the fact that like, I fit the stereotype to a T and as somebody, a 13 year old with a history of anorexia in a smaller body, again, fitting all of those checkbox stereotypical images that you would think, I went in having lost eight pounds and the pediatrician was like, whatever. And that fueled the eating disorder, right? So like, if I'm getting missed, everybody is getting missed. And to be fair to these pediatricians, I mean, we need tremendous, they need a lot more training, they need a tool. The fact that we don't have a pediatric screener for eating disorders is validated as like, absolutely wild. Um, And then we've talked to many well-meaning ones who are like, honestly, I don't want to open the box if I have nowhere to refer these folks, which is, you know, we have such a treatment vacuum right now that the odds are kind of stacked against folks. So that's an area that we definitely need work in. And then, yeah, it's so unfortunate that we have a system in which treatment that feels good is different than treatment that works. And it's so hard for families to actually differentiate between kind of what they see from a marketing perspective and what actually is good evidence-based treatment. And it's not to say, 
you know, that one treatment is going to work for everybody, but you go into a doctor for lung cancer and the doctor is going to say, here's the, here's the treatment that works for 80% of folks. Let's try this first. And then if that doesn't work, we'll go to the one with the second best evidence base. But there's an informed consent period that we have nothing similar to in mental health. And we know that the earlier that we intervene, the stronger folks' outcomes are going to have. And it's so unfortunate. And I think about, again, you and I had, in terms of like privilege, so much of it. And if you're being told, I remember my mom being told for years and years, stay out of it. Parents should not be involved with this. And at a certain point, she's like, well, like my daughter's not eating. What are you talking about? Ignore the food. Like <laughs> this, this is clearly not working. But we think about how many families that we've seen who, you know, come to equip and otherwise who, you know, for many more reasons were told, well, you know, you can't do FBT because X, Y, Z, you don't have the perfect family and sort of opting them out of the leading evidence-based treatment before they even get a chance to try. And it's just, it's, horrible. Um, it's horrible. Anyway, little soapbox. Uh, <laughs> I think we're on the same page about that one. But let's, uh, you know, pivot into how can parents help their children to challenge all of the harmful messages out there from diet culture? And what if they themselves are still struggling with their own disordered eating and internalized weight stigma? Yeah, it is it is really tough out there. I mean, if you're a human with a body, <laughs> you probably have an, some internalized messages about food and exercise and body size. So I, with parents, I always like to start with compassion and just validating your own experience that it makes sense if you've been dieting or it makes sense if you think that you're going to be judged as a parent based on what your kid eats or what they look like or how good they are at their sport. Like there's just so much pressure. And so I think starting with that, you know, self-compassion or validating yourself, like, okay, it makes sense. I don't need to beat myself up for having gone on a diet or having whatever. And so I think that's just a, a good place to start. You know, it's a tricky uh, needle to thread, I think, because I never, I, I never blame parents for passing diet culture onto their kids because that's the world we live in. Yeah. Um, and I don't blame parents if a kid develops an eating disorder. At the same time, I know that parents are powerful and we can lower the risk. Um, we can't inoculate every kid against an eating disorder yet. Like, wouldn't that be great if we had a magic um, vaccine? <laughs> um, but parent, you know, parents aren't powerless. And to me, the most important piece is that when parents start to kind of unlearn diet culture, start to challenge it in their home, they're lowering their risk for their kid and should their child develop an eating disorder because they happen anyway. Uh, it doesn't have to even come from a body image concern. It doesn't have to be because they went on a diet. There's so many pathways someone could develop an eating disorder. But when parents are aware of diet culture and they've, they've thought critically about some of these messages, they're much more likely to pick up on early warning signs and get that earlier intervention. So, you know, I think today, you know, if parents listening, if your kid comes to you and says like, I wanna eat healthier, I wanna get in shape. I think when you know about diet culture, those are red flags rather than like, hey, that sounds great. You'd be like, hmm, tell me more about that. And like really having a conversation and maybe even looping in a professional if you feel like, oh, there's something more going on here. Um, yeah, so self-compassion, you know, we're modeling lifelong learning as parents. Like it's okay, we can make mistakes and we can, we can change. I mean, I've had 
So many families basically do a 180 um, from how they used to approach food and exercise in their home and, and nobody regrets it. Like I know, Christina, you've talked about like of the thousands and thousands of people you've met in recovery, no one regrets the hard work of recovery. And yeah, for the parents and guardians I've worked with, no one I've ever met or worked with has regretted expanding their idea of what, what healthy food means, right? Or kind of realizing that like rest is really important. All these changes they've made, no parent regrets it because everybody wins. Like it's going to, it's going to lower your kid's risk. It's going to support recovery if they have an eating disorder and you're going to get more of your life back because just like eating disorders take people's lives and shrink them, you know, diet culture does too, right? Like as Christy Harrison calls it like the life thief, right? That diet culture like takes so much from us and separates us from what we really care about and what really fuels us and connects us. So really it's, it's a hard project to kind of parent without diet culture, but I think it's, I think it's really worthwhile. It's so worth it. I love that. Nobody, nobody regrets, uh, you know, doing the work of disinvesting from diet culture. And I wonder, you know, how it sounds like you started out understanding of the harms of diet culture and, you know, not making disparaging comments around your own body, putting dessert on the table. But I wonder how your child's eating disorder recovery journey brought you and your own family even farther into this work. Yeah, I mean, I thought I was doing everything right, quote unquote. Um, And I think that whole idea of doing things right or wrong, like that's come straight out of diet culture, right? The idea that there's like, there's like one thing. So um, this is going to look different in every family. I think I'll give a few examples. So yeah, I made a point never to disparage my body. So even if I was having a bad body image day or something, I never would have verbalized that to my kids, but I would compliment people on weight loss. I even complimented my kids' pediatrician in front of my kids, because she had lost a lot of weight. And I was like, Oh, what did you do? Tell me like, never connecting the dots at the time that that was sending the same message that bodies are in a hierarchy and that thinner is better. Um, so again, I want to like, send a like, I'm being really vulnerable here, like letting you all know, like, this is not like, I didn't just like spring from the womb, knowing what diet culture is, and like, how to fight fat phobia. Like, I really had to learn a lot of this the hard way. And it was making those kinds of painful mistakes and, and learning from them that I think has helped me help other families. So yeah, I might've served dessert every night, but did I have dessert every night, right? I think there's what we say matters and there's also what we do. I was, you know, dressing on the side mom because that's what I've been taught was like how, how a woman in the world eats lunch, right? So, you know, there were things I was doing that were reinforcing these messages that I had been given. Um, and I think I also fell into the, kind of wellness, healthy thing, not realizing that that was really part of diet culture. So the idea of buying store brand generic gummies, like I wouldn't even have done that. Like I was going to go to Whole Foods and get the organic gummies, right? And (laughs) again, and I had the like financial privilege to make that choice, but I was really subtly reinforcing Mm -hmm. food rules and demonizing certain foods or making them seem scary or not safe. So looking back, those are some of the just examples of little subtle messages. And again, I don't think I caused my child to have an eating disorder, but I I wasn't creating a, a safe haven from diet culture. And it also contributed to me not picking up on mm-hmm. some ways that some of these subtle things had become rigid rules or beliefs for my kid. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's so important 
And I love how at Equip, really the family mentors come at it from this place of like, no shame, no judgment. Like this makes sense. We are all swimming in this sea of crap and it, it makes sense that we have this. And in order to help our loved one really get to a place of recovery, we need to do a lot of work. And I think we just so often underestimate what families will do to get their loved one better. They will move mountains um, and they can do incredible things. And as you say, the kind of, you know, cherry on the top, so to speak, is that you end up having a much healthier relationship with your own, uh, you know, food and body and just brain space for more interesting and exciting things. I want to go back to the red flags and you wrote uh, a wonderful article and just about some of these, if your parent, if your child comes to you and says like, I want to eat healthy, I want to start working out, I want to get in shape, like, that being a red flag and wanting to interrogate that and, and really get into the why. Is there any answer that you would say, oh, okay, that makes sense? Or like, go go a step deeper of like, what would concern you or maybe what were, wouldn't concern you in that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I want to emphasize your point about starting with curiosity and asking some questions. Like, we don't have to panic. I think um, we're more likely to have, a, get an honest answer if we try to approach with you know, genuine curiosity, not like white knuckle, like, oh my God, why do you want to do this? So opening that door to that conversation, I think, I think there are really big differences. Like let's say, um, for instance, I know, I know a young person who is going on a Knowles trip, right? Where they're going to be doing pretty, um, are you familiar with Knowles? Yeah. One of my good friends is an instructor. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So for those who don't know, you know, it's, it's, intense outdoor education and leadership. And it, depending on the trip, it can be pretty physically demanding. You know, you're carrying a backpack, you are pitching your own tent, you're cooking your own food. Um, you might be hiking, you might be doing other physical activities that are, you know, require a lot of strength, endurance, flexibility, things like that. So if you, you know, if, if your young person is like, oh, I'm going on this trip, I want to be able to really, you know, get the most out of it. If I haven't been doing any of those kind of activities, I might need want to prepare for that. So to me, that wouldn't raise like every red flag. However, even someone pursuing what I would consider like an intrinsic goal, or like it's not a it's not an appearance goal, they could still get into trouble if they don't feel their bodies enough and they don't rest enough. So, you know, a kid who's like, I want to get in shape, so-called, you know, to try to make the varsity soccer team or a uh, class trip to, you know, the Great Wall of China, and I want to be able to like walk up those steps, you know, those intrinsic goals still need to be properly supported, you know, with fueling and rest and parents just keeping an eye on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction. And we know that, you know, it doesn't matter how you get into negative energy deficit for those who are predisposed to an eating disorder, whether this comes about from wanting to look like an Instagram model or, you know, getting your wisdom teeth out, it will lead to the same effect. So I love that you, I love that you highlight that. I think we've been talking a lot about, and I'm sure the majority of folks who are listening to this podcast are at least somewhat motivated to make changes to their own relationship with food and body. What do you do when you, you know, run into families who are not (laughs) that close to this place and still really entrenched with their own 
you know, diet culture beliefs, weight stigma, fat phobia. You know, I think I've talked to a lot of parents kind of outside of the eating disorder fields who are just like, well, I'm so worried. My child is gaining weight. You know, the doctor has has said that they're, you know, unhealthy and not in a good place. The American Academy of Pediatrics has said that this is not good for them, right? It's so reinforced. Or, you know, I hear a lot about, well, like, my kid is just eating so much junk. And like, I don't care about their weight. But like, it's just they're eating, you know, junk, quote, unquote, this unhealthy stuff. Like, how do you, how do you approach those parents? And how do you help shift their thinking? Yeah, well, I definitely know how I don't like, parents feeling parents feeling judged or you know blamed right that's never going to be effective and you know we just know that's going to make someone more entrenched so i do always try to approach with curiosity and you know where where they're getting these messages and beliefs and so much of it is how they grew up this is where kind of the intergenerational piece can come in i think sometimes you know, when parents look back um, and realize like, oh, how things might have been, could have been different if their parents had known something different. You know, it's a lot about asking questions about like what they really want for their child. Again, validating that all these messages tend to be reinforcing eating disorder beliefs and that they really want their child to have a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with their body and a healthy relationship with exercise that's going to look pretty different from the way our culture teaches us to approach those topics. So, you know, one thing I talk with families about, and this sometimes blows people's minds is even challenging the belief that there are healthy and unhealthy foods, right? And really what we want is a healthy relationship with food. Actually labeling foods interferes with that process. Um, So yeah, the, the labeling foods of like junk or toxic or, you know, now, I mean, the boogeyman du jour is the ultra processed foods. Um, and it's like every year, I think we have a new kind of nutritional boogeyman that everyone kind of gets really panicked about. It makes for great clickbait headlines. And we know it's going to increase people's vulnerability to eating disorders to have more foods that seem scary or threatening. So really talking families through what they want for their child, and then make, you know, offering the education of like, here's what it looks like when someone is stuck in an eating disorder. And so also asking parents to kind of put their, put their mindset in the, the framework of what, an, how an eating disorder would hear something. So kind of put it through the eating disorder filter. So when I have parents say like, well, I don't want them to have so much junk, like let's say a family in eating disorder treatment. I'll say, well, how do you think the eating disorder hears that kind of language like oh well they're hearing that that's something they can never eat in general with eating disorder treatment i often ask parents to be almost like a i don't know like a like a character on like a police procedural (laughs) where like you have to think like the criminal right to catch the criminal right so think like an eating disorder to help your child either lower the risk or to recover right if you think how is the eating disorder going to hear this or take this or twist this what how, how how does that affect the way i describe food or bodies or things like that. And I think that's can be a great tool for parents to start to kind of like check in. Ooh, if I say it that way, how would an eating disorder hear that? Mm, I'm going to try a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, approaching it from the non-shaming, non-blaming place and also like baby steps. I don't know that we can expect somebody, you know, to move in a week from point A to point Z, but like we can move them from point A to point B. And then maybe we can move them from point B to point C and just recognizing that it's a journey. They've been swimming in this sea of diet culture for 
you know, decades and it's going to be a journey to kind of get them into a new mindset. Yeah. And one thing I'll add too is, you know, I love that we have the family mentor role at Equip and I think our family groups are support groups because sometimes parents need to hear it from another parent still in the trenches. Um, so a parent who's, you know, say, oh, you know, oh, I was there right there with you when we first started, here's what helped me. So, you know, I think sometimes even when, even as a family mentor, because I'm wearing my like eating disorder professional hat, that can still be off-putting, but hearing from another family who's going through the exact same thing in the moment, I've seen that really make a big difference for parents. I love that you mentioned that. And it actually makes me think about um, one of the topics that we talk a lot about at Equip, which is the importance of full weight restoration and really setting aside this archaic and just inaccurate BMI classification and helping families to understand the importance of returning folks to where they were on the growth chart um, and really, you know, that being the best thing to enable them to live a life totally free of the eating disorder. It is so important. I wonder if you can just talk about the importance of full weight restoration and fighting some of that fat phobia and weight stigma and how you've seen families kind of move on that journey. Yeah, I have so much empathy for families who are afraid to support more weight gain because that's the thing their child and their eating disorder are most afraid of in most cases. So you're taking your child like into the scariest, darkest tunnel they've ever been in. Um, and so that's where parents really have that opportunity to be a leader in their family. They can have the motivation for both of them. You know, a parent can be the motivated, have the motivation for the, their child if they don't have motivation, but they need to see that light at the end of the tunnel. So I think that's where really understanding that body image generally improves with weight restoration, which in our culture, it's counterintuitive. People think, oh, isn't my child going to dislike their body more? Um, and in fact, we know, you know, maybe their body will matter a lot less to them. They're going to think clearly, they're going to build skills and resilience. They can learn about diet, like all these things open up when their brain and body are fully nourished. But it's really hard for parents to believe that in the moment because the eating disorder is making them terrified of that. Um, and I think I've seen incredible growth among families, you know, who support each other to say, look, you know, my kid actually needed a little more than we thought because we realized, you know, maybe there was some lower level restriction happening before the official onset of the eating disorder. So that growth curve was like, a, they were a little bit weight suppressed going into this. Um, or folks, you know, realizing, you know, my kid's just so much happier and more relaxed at a higher weight and you know, I like they wouldn't have believed it earlier on, but they're seeing it with their own two eyes and then sharing that with other families. It's It's been really powerful. Yeah, I think the power of the mentors and just having examples and stories, you can hear something from a dietitian or a therapist, but I think hearing the same experience and, you know, families who say, look, like, I was also terrified of this. I thought this was absolutely just bananas, <laughs> right? And seeing my kid on the other side, like thriving, seeing their smile come back, seeing them become alive. That's ultimately what, what changes hearts and minds and what moves people into recovery. And I know we talked, you know, I, I think we, we talked about pieces of this, but as we wrap up, I'd love to ask you just directly, we know that parents do not cause eating disorders point blank, but what can parents do to, you know, help prevent one from developing in their child? 
Yeah, I think, of course, there are a few things. I think just taking stock of your own beliefs about food and bodies. And if you're like, hmm, I have some pretty rigid ideas about these things. Like, again, give yourself compassion and open yourself up to learning more, right? There is more kind of anti-diet parenting support out there now than ever before. So there's lots of places to learn, um, you know, just to dip your toe in, whether it's a podcast or a book or social media. Um, there's a lot out there. Any that you love um, in particular that you want to call out for our listeners? Well, I think Virginia Soul Smith's new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, will really give you the information to like start. And the back of the book has tons of resources for body image, for books for children. I mean, it's just an incredible resource. Um, so I highly recommend that one. I mean, there's there's so many great ones out there. Um, I... I, I feel self-conscious calling out specific ones and leaving anyone out, but um. <laughs> fat talk feels like a really nice place to start. Um, that is probably a compilation of, of all of the resources that you would want. Yeah. And she gives, and she gives recommendations for other folks to, to follow and learn from. So I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah. And I think, you know, like we're recording this in summer at, um, you know, parents wear the bathing suit, get in the pool or go to the beach with your kids. If that's something that you like to do let your kids see you living your life, not being held back by body image fears or food fears. And I know that's easy, like easier said than done. Um, but parents can move mountains for their kids. We do incredible things for our kids. And showing your kids that you feel comfortable in your body, you feel comfortable eating all foods that you enjoy, like, that's going to go a long way. Um, and then just staying aware kids can learn diet culture in so many places, their sports team at school, from the doctor's office, from grandparents house. So you could have this totally safe haven home, but they're still going to get these influences. I mean, we haven't even talked about social media or just <laughs> media in general. Um, so just keeping that dialogue going and letting your kids know you're someone they can come to with questions. And, you know, I think that's the main thing is staying connected and attuned to our kids and letting them know that that we're there for that unconditional love and support. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah, I love that. And I think it was so valuable. And I look back on how lucky I was. My my mom had an experience with an eating disorder. And, you know, thankfully, by the time I had mine, and perhaps this was, you know, internal work that she did while I was in the eating disorder journey. But like, I remember her going bite for bite with me and, you know, going out and having French fries and having milkshakes. And, you know, it, it was so comforting and just normalizing to see her as a healthy role model participating in these things. And I think it, it, it would have been a lot more challenging um, had that not been the case. So I just want to reemphasize like Parents can do so much to help their loved ones um, in this healing journey and, and modeling is just so incredibly important. It has been such a pleasure having you here, Luna. I just have a couple more quick questions before we wrap up. I would love for you to finish the following statement with your first thought. Connection is? Something that requires vulnerability and safety. Body image is? something you can change. Diet culture is? Everywhere. And recovery is? Possible. What words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those recovery warriors who are going into battle with their eating disorder every single day? 
I guess my main words of wisdom are to be compassionate with yourself, to validate what you're going through, and right, getting the support you need to keep keep moving forward. I think we can get, you know, so that you don't get stuck, right? So it's giving yourself that self-compassion and the support to do things that are going to be uncomfortable because there's no way to recover from an eating disorder without going through a period of pretty intense discomfort. And you don't have to do it alone. You need support to get through that, that dark tunnel to get to that light at the end of the tunnel. I love that. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you? Um, Instagram's probably the easiest. I'm at Una underscore Hanson. So if you, if you just go to Una Hanson, there's a baby. That's not me. Um, <laughs> And then my website is just unahanson.com. And I always say when in doubt, it's an O um, when you're trying to spell my name. So those are probably the easiest ways to find me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Una, and for all the incredible work that you've put out into the world. I so appreciate what you do for families that equip and well beyond and the difference that you're making. It is so needed. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.